I want to talk this afternoon about a soul convinced of God's sufficiency. I'd like to read some verses from uh, 2 Kings chapter 4, looking at an incident in the life of Elisha, the successor to the prophet uh, Elijah. Let me just read from verse 8 down to verse... We'll stop at verse uh, 13 uh, this afternoon. Uh, It says, And it fell on a day that Elisha passed to Shunem, where was a great woman, and she constrained him to eat bread. And so it was that as oft as he passed by, uh, he turned in thither to eat bread. And she said unto her husband, Behold, now I perceive that this is a man, a holy man of God, which passeth by us continually. Uh, let us make a little chamber, I pray thee, on the wall, and let us set for him there a bed and a table and a stool and a candlestick, and it shall be when he cometh to us that he shall turn in thither. And it fell on a day that he came thither, and he turned into the chamber and lay there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite. And when he had called her, she stood before him. And and he said unto him, say now unto her, Behold, thou hast been careful for us with all this care. What is to be done for thee? What is thou be spoken for to the king or to the captain of the host? Uh, And she answered, I dwell among mine own people. I want to talk to you this afternoon and tomorrow morning about a soul convinced of God's sufficiency. What do you think about when you think about the word sufficient? Sufficient. In, uh, in different circumstances today, we could be out gardening, for instance. And uh, after half an hour or so in the sun, we might feel a little thirsty. And we uh, go into the kitchen and uh, pour a glass of water. We have a sip or two and that's sufficient we're satisfied Uh, that's a definition of sufficient is it not that's not a very good image in terms of God's sufficiency is it he's much more than just a temporary uh, satisfaction or uh, what about that uh, well-worn illustration of someone caught in the desert cars broken down they have to make that journey back somewhere they're out in the sun for for hours and and then days and they see this oasis and uh, it's not even a hallucination and they get to that oasis and they're not just sipping the water they've dived in they're splashing loads of water to go to, to go around well that still doesn't quite satisfy this idea of the sufficiency of God because God is inexhaustible He's much more than even a wonderful stream, bountiful stream in the desert. Uh, God is much more than that. And uh, today I want to begin what is uh, really an introduction to uh, tomorrow morning. Merely an introduction into uh, what's going on tomorrow morning. You you can't have a shorter series than two sermons. Uh, Try it. Uh, So we're going to start at this afternoon. And uh, thankfully my work finishes tomorrow morning. So I can sit back and enjoy the rest of the speakers, sweat it out and uh, labour uh, into tomorrow. Uh, but just a, just a couple of things about the setting of uh, 2 Kings 4. Uh, in other words, where does this event uh, fit in the entire context of the Bible? 
the Old Testament uh, spans, say, 4,000 years, give or take. We'll uh, use that as our, as our marker. And this, this incident occurs in about the last quarter of the Old Testament. Uh, this incident takes place in the time of the kings. Uh, Solomon succeeds David, and then the rest of the kings uh, follow. Uh, there is a division between north uh, and south. And uh, this incident takes place uh, at about 850 uh, BC or maybe a little bit uh, earlier uh, in the northern kingdom uh, during the ministry of the prophet Elisha. God raised up prophets uh, because the kings had ignored uh, the clear teaching of the Pentateuch, the uh, Torah. And so uh, men of God were, were, were raised up of the Lord to remind God's people of what he had already given them, what they had available to them. And hence we have some of these uh, prophets like Elisha and Elijah, uh, men that didn't give us uh, 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 books such as Isaiah and uh, Jeremiah and others. But we have these speaking prophets as it were. And so the time is about the last quarter of the Old Testament during the reigns of wicked kings Ahaziah and Jehoram, uh, the northern kingdom never really learnt the lessons of the prophets. About 130 years later, the northern kingdom is taken captive by the Assyrians and they never return to that place. Uh, but the promise to Judah in the south will ring true. And so that's the timing of Second uh, Kings 4. Uh, what about the place? Uh, we saw that uh, Elisha in verse 8 passes to Shunem. It was a town on the northern slopes of northern Israel, it was a, a place of great agriculture, of great wealth and riches. It's in Shunem that the Philistines camp before Saul's last battle in 1 Samuel 28. And it was a place where Abishag, one of David's women, came from. And in 2 Kings 4, we're introduced to a special woman. And yet, for some reason, we're not even given her first name. Uh, she is the woman from Shunem, the Shunammite. And I'd like us to, uh, to consider uh, this soul, uh, this soul satisfied in God's sufficiency. Yes, there were Old Testament saints who, who understood who God really was. And I want us to see her through four angles uh, this afternoon, four angles. And uh, I've got a good memory of faces. If you fall asleep, I will shun you tomorrow. Um, <laughs> I will be nasty. I have that capacity. First of all, first of all, just good, you're all here, good. First of all, she enjoyed great wealth. Uh, she, she was a wealthy woman, wealthy woman. Uh, if you look at verse 8, it says that she was, she was great. She was great. And in Bible times, you are great if uh, you were royalty or you had wealth, essentially. Uh, you could say that she was a prominent and wealthy woman. Uh, she was well-known in her community, much like a local councillor today, a prominent business person with, 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 with interests and property and businesses and things like that. And because she possessed great wealth, she had influence. And in many ways, that really hasn't changed. Wealth does bring a prominence, it brings a position which, which can be used for good or evil. It can be used for good things, it can be used for bad things, for, for selfish ends, for selfless ends, and yet this woman, as we'll see this, this afternoon and tomorrow, 
she enjoyed unusual wealth. Uh, she was a special woman. And I think we need to be reminded that the Bible does not condemn wealth. It doesn't condemn it. It actually, it actually uh, uh, warns us about its dangers. But the truth is that, that wealth is and can be a gift of God. Uh, we don't want to fall into the trap of uh, the, in the early church of, you know, uh, uh, material things are bad and spiritual things are good. Because God made us with a body that needs to eat and needs to have a roof over its head and uh, needs to be clothed and you know, things like that. And so uh, uh, wealth and, and the, the material realm is a gift of God. But what the Bible does condemn is covetousness. It does condemn that. In, in Proverbs 30, the uh, writer asked God to remove from him vanity. He said, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me, lest I be full and deny thee. And say, who is the Lord? Or, lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. You see, rich people and poor people can both be covetous. Uh, those with uh, not a financial care in the world can somehow want more as those who don't know where the next meal is coming from. There, there are dangers in either extremes. And so the writer of the Proverbs wisely asked God for you know, something in the middle, essentially. Uh, Lord, meet my needs so that uh, I won't be uh, led to either extreme of, of uh, leading to covetousness. Uh, think about Proverbs 31. Think about the, the woman. I'm sure the ladies here are probably tired of hearing about Proverbs 31. You probably hear it every other ladies' meeting. Uh, but, but let me remind you again about this woman in Proverbs 31. She is involved in business. She dresses her children beautifully. She buys property. She purchases a vineyard. She gives to the poor. She honors her husband. This woman is the exception to the rule. She is exceptional. She uses her wealth wisely. Think of Joseph of Arimathea who used his wealth to give God's son an honorable burial. Uh, Isaiah 53 tells us that he made his grave with the rich. And so Joseph, in giving of his uh, material wealth to God's son, fulfilled Bible prophecy. But if you would just turn for a moment, keep a bookmark in 2 Kings 4, and then go over to uh, 1 Timothy 6, uh, dealing with this topic, because what's, uh, what's good about 1 Timothy 6 is that you have so many earlier Bible principles sort of all, all contained within a very condensed passage. What 1 Timothy 6 tells us is in many ways a summary of what the rest of the Bible tells us about riches. He tells us in verse 6 of 1 Timothy 6 that godliness with contentment is great gain. That's true riches, godliness with contentment. Uh, he, he reminds us in verse 7 that we brought nothing into this world and if you were there for the birth of your child, you will affirm that was true. They, they, they arrived with nothing, right? Not a thing. You cut the cord and you wrap them in a towel. And that's, that's where they began, literally. And he says it's certain that we carry nothing out. That life that begins with nothing is uh, going to one day be, be buried in a, in a box. With some grave clothes, perhaps. But even those rot away and so he says in verse 8 having food and raiment let us therewith be content 
But they that will be rich fall into many temptations and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil. Responsible for so much devastation in this world, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So evidently there were people that had made profession of faith, even real believers who had gone astray because of the riches of the world. But if you would just go down to verse 17, go down to verse 17, Paul tells Timothy, charge them, or in other words, command them. Command them that that are rich in this world. That they not be high-minded, don't be proud. And, you know, to be honest, uh, the rich in this world probably includes all of us sitting here today. When you look at who the poor were in the Bible, they were really, really poor. And uh, probably all of us ha- have more than what we strictly need, do we not? And so Paul tells Timothy, this is what you must command them. It is entirely legitimate for preachers to deal with this topic. Because Paul tells Timothy, you must do this. He says, charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, don't be proud, because that can often come from that abundance. He says, not, uh, nor, nor trust in uncertain riches. There's a risk element. Many, many years ago, friends of ours sat us down in their living room, and uh, they were telling us about an investment they were about to make, and they encouraged us to make the investment with them. And it was, it was a, a marginal sort of lending scheme where you gave a bunch of money to a company and then they, they lent you the same amount and you earned interest on both sums and it was a fantastic return. And uh, it was a minimum of $50,000 to get into this scheme and the problem was I didn't have a spare 50. That was a difficulty. <laughs> and, and, and I still don't have that spare 50. I, I figured if I had a spare 50 and didn't matter if I won or lost it, Hey, let's see what happens to this 50, but I didn't have the 50. And let me tell you uh, the name of the company which they are investing in. And those up north will remember this company, a company called Storm Financial. That was the Townsville firm which which, uh, went up, giving to Storm Financial. It's like going outside and, you know, there's a cyclone and sort of throwing your money up in the air and, and, and wondering what, what's going to happen to it. But it's uncertain and, and we need to realise that, 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 that the riches we have are uncertain. Are uncertain. Uh, things happen beyond our control. You know, we, we, we really need to pray for Wall Street today, you know. Pray that all the brokers and bankers act ethically and, and you know, don't do anything wrong. You know, we need to pray for the <laughs> Wall Street because it's people make decisions and we lose sometimes beyond our control. It's uncertain. On the other hand, verse 17, but in the living God, we, we're to trust in the living God. You see, it's about who we trust. We have riches, we'll trust in the living God. God's given you things, trust him. You could lose them. Well, then you lose them. It doesn't mean you want to lose them, but you may. There's not a lot we can do about it. It says, who giveth richly all things to enjoy. God has given you riches, enjoy them, use them wisely. 
these are gifts of God that he gives. So what are we to do if we have riches? He says in verse 18 that they do good. Be generous. He says that they be rich in good works. Here I think Paul is, is using a play on words. He says, let them be rich in good work, in good works. You think you've got so many things? Well, you, you, you start accumulating good works. You give of those resources. He says, be ready to distribute. In other words, be on the lookout. Be on the lookout. It's like someone that's got a whole bunch of tracks in their hand. They're looking for people to give that the gospel to. Well, if you have uh, riches, then you be on the lookout to be a blessing to others. You be proactive about this. And then in verse 18, he says, willing to communicate. In other words, give voluntarily. We can't force others to give. It's not our business to force others to give anything. They have to give out of a cheerful and willing heart, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. He says in verse 19, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Uh, we're saved by God's grace, not by our giving, but you want uh, a wonderful entrance into glory and enjoy the blessings of God and his rewards, then learn to give generously. And this uh, woman here in Shunem was a person of great wealth. I want to come back to that a little bit later in the message. So that's the first thing, she had great wealth. There's something else I want us to learn about the woman. That's in verse 9. So go back to 2 Kings 4. 2 Kings 4. Look at verse 9. And she's talking to her husband here in verse 9. It says, Behold now, I perceive... That this is an holy man of God, which passeth by us continually. Well, just a woman of uh, great wealth, but she was a woman of great perception. Great perception. She observes Elisha's life. And she tells her husband that this is a holy man of God. I'll tell you why that was significant. Because in those days... There were other prophets that were not holy. That were not holy. They were not preaching the truth of God's word. Uh, out of all of the writing prophets of the Old Testament, there, there are two who were directly given by, by God to the northern kingdom, Amos and Hosea. Uh, some of the other prophets certainly spoke about Israel. They spoke about the northern kingdom, and yet it is Amos and Hosea who were given specifically to the northern kingdom. Now, they came about 90, 100 years after the events of 2 Kings 4. But let me just read uh, Hosea 9, 7, as, he, as Hosea talks about the prophets of the northern kingdom. He says, The day of visitation are come, the day of recompense are come, Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool, the spiritual man is mad, for the multitude of thine iniquity and the great hatred i mean this could be 6 a.m you know sunday morning on most of the channels the spiritual man is mad the prophet is a fool uh, in amos 2 god laments he says i raised up of your sons for prophets and of your young men for nazarites is it not even thus O ye children of israel saith the lord 
but ye gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets, saying, Prophesy not. So you got corrupt prophets and corrupt people. And they're sort of egging each other on. They didn't want to hear the truth and they corrupted the prophets. Don't tell us the truth. The Nazarites were not to drink wine and so the people say, sure, have a drink. And so God's people had turned their back on God's truth. But here's the point about the woman of Shunem. She knew how to pick a phony. She knew how to pick a phony. And uh, Elisha had come through Shunem so often they got talking, he met the family. There was something about him that impressed her deeply. She observed from Elisha's life and behavior the very holiness of God. How, how convicting. Do people in our presence, in our presence, do they detect anything of God's holiness? His grace, his mercy, compassion. That's how Elisha impressed. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2, your witnesses in God also how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. He says, you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a, as a father doth his children. Paul says, you know how we were among you. You know how, how we lived in holiness before you. But she had discernment. She had discernment. Uh, Paul prayed in Philippians 1, 9 and 10 that the Philippians would grow in their judgment in their discernment. I wonder, can you and I discern what and who is holy? Can we discern what and true is holy? Can we discern a holiness of life, a holiness of, of doctrine? Uh, we live in an age where the church generally is marked by complete absence of discernment and, and wisdom. That, that has been thrown out the window. In Psalm 119, 104, it says, Through thy precepts I get understanding. Through, through your word I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. You see, before you, you know what is false, you've got to know what is true. You've got to know the benchmark. You've got to know the standard. And, and there aren't enough Sundays for us to... To, uh, to chase up every heresy out there. There aren't enough Sundays, but there are enough Sundays to teach the truths of God's word so that you give people a, a heart and a love for the truth. And when, uh, when error rears its ugly head, they're grounded in the truth. We do address error and we do address heresies, but we must first start with the truth of God's word I had a conversation with a, with a fellow in Gladstone a few years ago and he told me about his conversion as, as a young boy as a young boy primary age boy and he came from a home where his uh, where his father had uh, become a Christian but his mother was a Jehovah's Witness and uh, after he got saved uh, he would uh, go to some Bible studies with his mother's JW group and, and he said, you know, even as a little boy, I knew that something wasn't right. Think about that. Something just wasn't right. He had 
discernment. Discernment. And we need to develop that kind of discernment. And the only way I know how to do that is to be grounded in, in the precepts of God's word. So she had discernment. Now there, there's a third thing that she had uh, in 2 Kings 4. Look at verse 8 again. Look at verse 8. We have uh, Elisha passing to Shunem. It says she constrained him to eat bread. And so it was that as often as he passed by, he turned in thither to eat bread. Uh, Elisha was reluctant to impose himself. It says that she constrained him. So he passes through the town and, and, and he says, I, I just need to keep moving. And she says, no, you need, you need to come, Elisha, and have some lunch. And then he says, look, I've got to get going. I need to get to the next. No, Elisha, you need to just stay and then to stay for the night or two. And so she constrained him. Elisha said, no, I can't. And she said, yes, you will. Now I have a question for all the pastors here. What is the difference between her constraining him and her being bossy? Because I have no idea. This, is, this has had me perplexed um, for a long time. So she constrained him. She knew he, was, he didn't want to impose. He wasn't looking for a free feed, so to speak. Free accommodation whenever he turned in. But she showed great hospitality. And what you have in verse 9 and 10 is her speaking to her husband. In verse 9 she says, this is the holy man of God. Look at verse 10. Let us make a little chamber, I pray thee, on the wall. And let us set for him there a bed and a table and a stool and a candlestick. And it shall be when he cometh to us that he shall turn in thither. Um, we're going to see more of this relationship between the, between the woman and her husband. And what is clear from, from 2 Kings 4 is that she, she is the one that is wearing the spiritual pants. She, she's the one with the spiritual burden. Uh, she's able somehow to preserve and even foster a vibrant spiritual life apart from her husband. And this goes right through 2 Kings 4. But she did know Elisha would need this. He needs a bed, he needs a table, a stool, he needs a candlestick. And you know what? Not much has changed for visiting preachers, right? Not much has changed. Bed, table, stool, a candlestick, not much has changed. I, I would add Wi-Fi. Um, working Wi-Fi. That helps. But the thing is that uh, she had a sense of his need. He needs somewhere to rest his head. He needs somewhere to study so that he can share God's word. She understood Elisha's sacrifices and she wanted to help. So she asked her husband for permission to do some renovations. Now, you might say at this point, well, here's the thing. They had the money to do it. They're wealthy. I mean, maybe they could have put this big extension on and, like, it didn't even affect them. They can hire some workers and add this room and they wouldn't even feel it. Uh, if I had her kind of wealth, I would be just as generous. See, that's the thing. The problem is she has more than I have and so I, I just couldn't do what, what she did. Uh, Jesus tells us in the Gospels that the one who is faithful in little is faithful in much. So... 
if, if ever one day you became as wealthy as this woman was, um, that's not going to change you, really. Uh, if, if, if you and I aren't generous with, with, with a little bit, uh, we're not going to be generous with a lot. A couple of years ago, uh, our, our oldest son, Michael, lost his first tooth. And uh, as, as responsible Christian parents, we told him that if he put his tooth under his pillow, um, mysterious things would happen. And uh, there'd, there'd be a gold dollar coin under the pillow. And uh, I think the first night or two, he wanted to keep his tooth. He was fascinated with this, you know, with this rotting tooth that he'd pulled out. But uh, he put the tooth under the pillow and get, gets his dollar. And we're wondering what he's going to do with, with, with that dollar. And a few months before that, I had family visiting mum and auntie and, and grandmother from Sydney. And at that point, my grandmother was slowing down. Uh, she's in a nursing home now in Sydney, has dementia. Uh, for a lady who, who raised five children on her own. Uh, this is, uh, and, and was a hive of activity. Now uh, things have, have uh, changed. But when they stayed with us, uh, Nan got a little bit sick and we uh, called a doctor, those sort of dialer doctors, and uh, our kids were fascinated. with. They'd never seen a doctor and nurse you know, come to our house. And uh, so they met the family. And so fast forward a few months and Michael has his, his dollar and, and we asked him, well, you know, what are you going to do with the dollar? And he said, you know what? He said, I want to, I want to give this to, uh, I want to give this money to Grandma because, you know, she's really old. She mustn't have any money. That was his conclusion that he drew. Now that's really cute. And uh, we can say, well, he, he, he doesn't understand the value of money, and that is true. But sometimes we don't either. Sometimes we don't either. It's like this, this is my dollar. <laughs> it's all mine. Well, it's not all yours or mine. It's actually God's. And our default should be that we should want to give generously to the Lord's work. So she showed hospitality. You know, all of us need to practice hospitality. And, you know, the reason why it says in the pastoral requirements that a pastor has to be given to hospitality is so that the rest of the church can look at him and they can do the same thing. That's why the commandment's there. In Romans 13, 13, it says, distributing to the necessity of saints given to hospitality, that's given to the whole church. So everyone ought to be hospitable. It's, it's not just about what the pastor does in his home. Uh, th- there's a little book, I'm not sure if uh, Brother Tracy is selling it this weekend, it's uh, called The Hospitality Commands by Alexander Strouch, and uh, he has a chapter called A Missing Crown Jewel. Let me just read what he said. He said, an elderly single woman who now attends our church related an experience to me that dramatically illustrated why we need fresh teaching on the subject of Christian hospitality. At one time in her life, she had to travel more than an hour by bus every Sunday to attend a small suburban church. Each week after the morning, Sunday morning service, she would eat alone in a restaurant and then spend an entire afternoon in the park library so she could attend the evening service. She did this for four years. What left her with some sour memories of this church was the fact that in four years, no one invited her home to eat a Sunday afternoon meal or to rest. It wasn't until she announced she was leaving that an elderly woman in the church invited her home for a meal on her final Sunday. 
Now, I know some people are hard to get back in your home for meals. I know some people, you know, leave, you know, even before the last hymn. We all have maybe those sort of people that just go. They, they don't want to stay and, you know, be part of the things. But it shows us that uh, hospitality is really important. It is really important. Uh, when we first moved to Melton, uh, they had a Sunday morning service. And it just, for whatever reason, never had a Sunday evening service. And for the last 20 years, I'd gone to church Sunday night. Right. So we get there in July and there's nothing Sunday evening. And uh, it, it felt like I had eight days in a week. Right. It felt like I got an extra day. I felt, I felt guilty getting paid <laughs> those first few months. And so what we tried to do is we tried to have people over at Sunday night for a meal and singing and some fellowship and you know it's a small church so it doesn't take long to get the whole church over and it took a few months but that helped us get to know people that helped us get to know people so that, so that when some difficulties came as they did I wasn't just the guy that sort of preached them every week they'd been in our home they kind of got to know us a little bit we did have some rapport with them and so why don't you invite your pastor home for lunch one day don't wait for the invitation to go to his house. Why don't you have him and his family over? Or others in the church over, you might say, well, I, you know, I'm not really a cook. Well, can you not take them out for a cup of coffee? <laughs> that passes hospitality too. That counts as well. doesn't have to be a big deal. But she was a woman of great hospitality. Uh, she was so good. Look at verse 13. Look at, what, look at how uh, Elijah describes this. He tells Gehazi to say this in verse 13. Say now unto her, Behold, thou hast been careful for us with all this care. It's like saying you have loved us with all this love. You see, when, she, when they made that, uh, that additional room, it was a comfortable bed. <laughs> the food was delicious. They were friendly. They weren't sort of looking at their watch and wondering when he was, had to go. They went out of their way. Uh, in 1 Peter 4.9 it says, Use hospitality uh, one to another without grudging. Our children love having guests over in our home because the food is generally better. <laughs> they get des they're guaranteed dessert. So you know, our, our kids, they, they love showing hospitality because it works out very well for them. <laughs> if they will but behave when the guests are here, they get lots of dessert. So they're in favour of mum and dad showing hospitality. Last point today, last point. Go to verse 11 of 2 Kings 4. And that is she... Experienced great contentment. She experienced great contentment. Go back to verse 11. Uh, Elisha's there. In verse 12, he says, So that Gehazi the servant called the Shunammite, and when he had called her, she stood before him. And he said unto him, Say now unto her, Behold, thou hast been careful for us with all this care. What is to be done for thee? We want to bless you now. We want to give back to you. Wouldst thou be spoken of for to the king or to the captain of the host? And she answered, I dwell among mine own people. 
Now, we don't talk that way these days. We don't speak in those in that language. I dwell among my own people. I mean, that, that's a little bit hard to understand. If I asked you, what, how, how can I help you? You know, the church has been a blessing and you have rolled out the red carpet and you've made us such a great conference and you just say, well, I, I live in Grafton. <laughs> Thanks. I live in Grafton. <laughs> I, I know that. <laughs> the sense is this. God has put me here. God has put me here. And I don't need anything. I dwell where God has put me. I've heard Pastor Davey say that Grafton is God's own country. For that very reason. Because God put him there. And, and I'm trying to get to that point where I live too. She says, I dwell with my family and the people around me in my village and this is where God has put me. I am content. That's what she's saying. Now, now Elijah's not satisfied with that. You see, he can be pushy too when he needs to be. Look at verse 14. And he said, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, verily, she hath no child and her husband is old. And he said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the door. You know what Gehazi had to do? He had to raise with Elisha the fact that she has no child. She didn't let on. She doesn't tell him. In Old Testament culture, having a child was virtual proof of God's blessing and national and personal obedience. You, you hear that a lot, but let me give you the verses for that. Exodus 23, 25 to 26. You shall bless the Lord your you shall serve the Lord your God and shall he shall bless thy bread and, and thy water. I will take sickness away from the midst of thee. There shall be nothing cast uh, there, there shall nothing cast their young, nor be barren in thy land. The number of thy days I will fulfill. Hence you have a barren Jewish woman and it's like God is judging me. That was virtually said in Scripture. Isn't it interesting that She's got the wealth, she has the community standing, she has financial security, but there's one elusive thing missing. That one thing. And that one thing that eluded her was the very one thing that touched her very womanhood, being a mother. It touched the raw nerve of her existence and her purpose as a good Jewish woman to bear a child to her husband. She could play her own role in keeping the seed of Abraham alive. It's about the Abrahamic covenant. I mean, maybe the, the baby that comes will be the promised seed. She has no even hope of that. And so the opportunity comes for her to change her circumstances by requesting of the prophet a miracle and she asks for nothing. She asks for nothing. Here's a guy that can just turn her life upside down. You see, her efforts at hospitality had no hidden agenda. She wasn't trying to get on the right side of Elijah in this passage. And you know, what's interesting to me is that despite the aching void of the barrenness, 
She can still serve God and others. You know that? She can still serve God and others. Uh, all of us, you know, simply because we live in a sin curse, all of us have, ha- ha- have missing pieces of the puzzle. We've got this ideal about life. And there are these missing pieces. But, you know, you can serve God even when the pieces aren't always in place because she's convinced of God's sufficiency. I dwell among my own people. I'm just where God put me. The fact is that this woman had all she needed to commune with God and to live for him. She had it. Let me ask you today, let me ask you this. Are you a soul convinced of God's sufficiency? You're convinced about that yourself. Because it would be a great shame to hear all these sermons and then go home and we're still not convinced. We want you to be convinced about God's sufficiency. Well, how do you know if you are or not? What's the test? Well, I think one answer from 2 Kings 4 is that if, if the opportunity afforded itself, to radically change those circumstances. If that opportunity existed, what would that, what would your response be? Could you say, I dwell among my own people? So here's the thing, God does and can direct, redirect our path. And he does this in 2 Kings 4, by the way. We're going to look at that tomorrow morning. But the point is, the point is this, is that this woman here isn't pining for something more. She is satisfied already in the goodness and grace of God. She doesn't need a baby for that. What else do you need in your life so that you can be satisfied in God's sufficiency? I mean, it's, that's, that's an impossible thing. When you have God. Our hearts need to be satisfied with God wherever we are. You know, half the people in our church want to live in Queensland. <laughs> the aches, the pains, the, you know, dead set. Half of them would, would, would go somewhere else. Right? And, and I've learned not to really discourage them, you know. I say, well, listen, you know, I'd go there too. <laughs> but, but it's got to be more than what you and I want. It's got to be as more than that. God has to be involved in the picture, you see. And, and God may lead you, he may redirect your path, he may change your circumstances, as he does here, as we'll learn, but he does so for people who are already satisfied with who he is. His sufficiency. So she's a soul convinced of God's sufficiency. And we don't know how she learned these lessons. We don't know how, the means, probably through the very ordinary circumstances of her life. But here's the thing. If, if Christ is everything to you and I, everything else is in its proper priority in place. When Jesus is on the throne, everything else is exactly where it needs to be. When anything else is on the throne, it is chaos it's a mess and so we're very much like this woman today we have things going for us we have things missing but we can by his grace be satisfied where god has put us
let, let me finish with this uh, illustration. Uh, late last year, we had some interesting visitors come through Melbourne, here for just a few days. And, uh, and one, of, one of them, the visitors, was a retired pastor uh, by the name of David McElveen. Some of you may know the name. Uh, he was a, a pastor in the Free Presbyterian Church in Northern Ireland for many, many, had the same church for many, many years. And he, he was, uh, worked closely with Ian Paisley. Uh, even today, David McElveen uh, travels and, and pursues the mission interests of the Free Presbyterians. His, his son, uh, David Jr., is a, is a member of Parliament in Northern Ireland Assembly. And McElveen began his ministry at, at the height of Ian Paisley's preaching ministry in Belfast. It's not a big country. And so McElveen's ministry, his church, was two or three miles from Martyrs Memorial Church in Belfast. And McElveen said that on Sunday evening, Sunday evening, uh, Ian Paisley would preach to at least 2,000 people. And he said at his church, a few miles away, he got to preach to 20 people. And he said to me, he said, you know, brother, he said, it's wonderful when God entrusts you with nothing. It's wonderful. And he stayed in the same place, and he stayed in the same place, and the Lord blessed him. He blessed him. And uh, McElveen has become a spokesman uh, to, to the media. He, he was able to debate um, uh, Richard Dawkins, the, the atheist writer, Richard Dawkins, and was able to, to tell him privately, Richard, unless you repent, you will perish. And uh, McElveen's such an ironic, peaceful man that, uh, that uh, Dawkins actually thanked him for his graciousness in, in telling him that he had to repent. He was content where God had put him. And that's what God wants for us today. And uh, don't read ahead, okay? Just, just don't read beyond what we've looked at. I want to get there tomorrow morning and keep you in suspense somehow. May God bless you. Thanks.